Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we're going to be talking about the true crime that was the partial inspiration of Alexandre Dumas' The Count of Monte Cristo. For the other half of the story, you'll have to stay tuned for a future episode. Today's episode is based on a book called The Diamond and the Vengeance by Jacques Pouchet and translated by James Baer. It was originally published in French in the 19th century and based on police records of the crime. Side note, I do apologize for my pronunciation. I think I've got most of it right, but just in case. The language is wonderfully flowery. It's only a dollar on Kindle, and if you have a young murderino on your hands who enjoys a good bedtime story, I highly recommend it, especially since it'll help build their vocabulary. What is a murderino, you ask? Someone fascinated by true crime and a listener of the My Favorite Murder podcast, which is a great podcast. So, how does this macabre tale begin? With a love story, of course. The year was 1807. Side note, uh, I'm so tempted to shout that date out like Dave Anthony on the Dollop podcast. If you like history and comedy and don't mind a little strong language and humor that gets a little naughty, I cannot recommend this podcast enough. It is so informative and has made me laugh so hard in the past that tears were running down my face. I'd wanted to share that recently with my mom while she was riding with me in my car, so I listed off some episodes and she chose a title. It had been a while since I'd listened, so I'd forgotten how crass some of the humor could be. We eventually switched over to listening to music. My bad, mom. My bad. Anyway, the year was 1807. Francois Picot was engaged to be married to a beautiful heiress, Marguerite de Figaro. He was so overjoyed, he went to invite some of his friends to his wedding later that week. Mathieu Lubian, a restaurateur, Antoine Alou, and two others were at the cafe owned by Lupian, a friend of Picot's who, while slightly better off, was known for being jealous of anyone's good fortune he felt was undeserved. When they heard of the impending nuptials, the friends teased each other good-naturedly, and once Picot left... Lupia laid out a plan to make him late for his ceremony. Accuse him of being an English spy. One of the group, Antoine Alou, warned the rest that doing this could have dire consequences, as Picot was likely to take serious revenge. The rest just laughed him off and called him names. They should have listened. Late that night, following the orders of a very industrious young intelligence officer, a group of Parisian police took Picot from his bedroom with such secrecy that no one saw him leave. His family and friends tried in vain to find even the slightest information about his whereabouts, but eventually no one concerned themselves with him anymore. Time passed. 1814 arrived. The imperial government of Napoleon fell, and around April 15th of that year, out of the Chateau de Fenestrelle emerged a man, bent over from suffering and aged by despair more than by time alone. You could say he aged half a century in seven years. No one recognized him. Francois Picot did not even recognize himself when, in the impoverished village of Fenestrelle, he was able to look in a mirror for the first time since his arrest. While in prison, Picot answered to the first and last name of Joseph Lucher. He had been assigned as a servant to a rich churchman from Milan who viewed Lucher more as a son than a slave. 
Upset about the way he had been abandoned in prison by his family, this church official made sure none of them would be able to get their hands on any of his money. The book then goes into detail about just how much money the Italian nobleman left to Lucere, millions upon millions, how he taught him all about how to manage his money to make more money, and how Lucere set about getting all of his financial ducks in a row before moving back to Paris. After casually asking around his old neighborhood, he learned that young Francois Picot had been the victim of a practical joke played by a group of three or four friends. His fiancée mourned his disappearance for two years before marrying the café owner Lupia, who used the dowry from the marriage to expand his business and now owned one of the most popular and elegant restaurants in Paris. No one could tell him the names of the authors of his misery, but one person thought that they knew of someone who could tell the full story, Antoine Allou. Using the pretense that he was supposed to return some money he'd borrowed from Antoine's cousin, Lucher was able to learn where Antoine Allou was now living. A few days later, an Italian Abbe Baldini, yet another name that Picot started using, arrived by coach in the same village Antoine was now living. After some very subtle maneuvering, he eventually became acquainted with Antoine and told him a story of how he'd met Francois Picot while visiting the prison. He went on about how Picot had no idea who was responsible for his misfortune, but at that at the end, he'd wanted nothing more than to be able to pardon and forgive those who had wronged him, so much so that he was willing to give up his place in paradise to the person who could answer that question, and entrusted Abbe Baldini with a diamond ring worth 50,000 francs to deliver to Antoine Allou if he was able to provide the names of his accusers. As he finished telling his story, Abbe Baldini finally displayed the ring, which was clearly worth a fortune and could probably, in the right circumstances, fetch almost twice as much as its purported value. At this moment, Antoine's wife came inside in quite a huff as she'd just learned that his brother and sister-in-law had just gotten a windfall of 20,000 francs from a grateful foreigner whose life had been saved the year before by Antoine's brother. In all likelihood, this was somehow also orchestrated by Picot in order to force Antoine's hand. Antoine did end up providing the names of Gervais Chapeaud, Guilhem Solari, and finally that of Matthew Lupian. The abbe turned the ring over to them as he had promised. As soon as the meeting was over, Madame Alou went directly to the jeweler. The jeweler went into debt to buy the ring. Four months later, to the eternal dismay of the Alus, the diamond was resold to a Turkish merchant for 102,000 francs. The great difference between the two prices brought about a murder, that of the jeweler, and totally ruined the reputation of the Alus, who had to flee Paris. They ended up immigrating to Greece, where they lived in unhappy exile and poverty. Meanwhile, Picot makes his way back to Paris and takes on another disguise, that of an old waiter named Prosper, and he manages to get a job in Lupian's café. Madame Lupian looked over the old waiter and thought he looked familiar, but she couldn't place him. Now, two of the conspirators used to always go to this café. One of the two did not appear one day. People joked about his absence. The next day, he still had not shown up. What was he doing? Solari promised to find out the reason for his absence. 
He came back to the cafe about nine o'clock in the evening and, in a very distressed state, told how on the bridge of the arts at just about five o'clock in the morning the body of the unfortunate Chaubard was found stabbed with a dagger. The dagger was still in the wound, and on his sleeve one could read letters of a note which formed the imprinted words, Number One. Despite how hard the police worked, the case remained unsolved. Around this time, two beloved pets belonging to the Lupians, a hunting dog and Madame Lupian's favorite parakeet, fell victim to a poisoner. Unfortunately, like the murder of Chabard, the guilty party was never found. Lupian had a beautiful 16-year-old daughter from his first marriage. An older man saw her and fell desperately in love. He showered her with gifts and, pretending to be a marquis and a millionaire, managed to seduce her. She confessed her unplanned pregnancy to her parents, and they approached the man and came to an agreement for the two to be married. He wanted a big ceremony and party, and the day arrived, all the guests arrived, and instead of the bridegroom came a letter. The letter announced that the Marquis had to return to his chateau on the orders of the king. He apologized for being late and asked that everyone join him when he returned to his wife's side at ten o'clock. The guests feasted on the dinner, but without the usual bridegroom. This put the bride in a bad mood because people were saying how important the man must have been to be called away by the king himself. The two main courses were enjoyed by all. During dessert, a waiter placed a letter at the place of every guest. This letter told them that the husband was a convict who had escaped from the galleys. Now he had taken flight again. The Lupians were in serious distress. To make matters worse, four days later, while they were all out in the countryside, fire was set in nine different places in the apartment above the café. Looters came in on the pretext of helping fight the fire, and most of their worldly belongings were destroyed or stolen. They, themselves, were destroyed. The only person who remained lawyer, loyal was the old waiter Prosper. Eventually, the Lupians were able to open a smaller, more modest café. Another conspirator, Solari, began coming back to the new café every day. One evening, on arriving back at his home, he was taken with an atrocious agony. A doctor was called. He said that Solari had been poisoned, and in spite of all the remedies, the unfortunate man died among terrible convulsions. According to the custom, twelve hours later the coffin was displayed under the doorway to the house where Solari lived. Displayed on the black drapery which covered the coffin was a paper looking like it had been printed and inscribed with these two sinister words. Number two. Apart from his daughter's fate, Lupion's son from his first marriage had fallen into a bad crowd. One night, he and his buddies decided to have fun and rob a liquor store. The police came right away, thanks to an informant, and arrested all of the boys. They were all sentenced to death, except for Lupian's son, despite someone in the background pulling all the strings they could to ensure it, and he only ended up serving 20 years in prison. This was almost the end for the Lupian family. Marguerite died of shame without having any children of her own. Because of this, Lupian had to return what was left of her dowry, and he and his daughter were left without any resources. At this point, 
Prosper, the old waiter, decided to offer Mademoiselle Lupian a a proposition in order to save her and her father from complete ruin, and she became his concubine. Lupion lived on in pain, his misfortunes having weakened his mind. One evening, while he was taking a walk down a dark alley, a masked man jumped in front of him. Lupion, he cried, do you remember 1807? Why? Do you remember the crime you committed that year? A crime? An infamous crime. Out of jealousy you sent your friend Picot to the dungeon. Do you remember? Ah! God has already punished me severely for it. No, it was Picot himself who did it. It was he who, to satisfy his vengeance, stabbed Chaubard on the Bridge of the Arts, poisoned Solari, gave your daughter a criminal for a husband, and orchestrated the intrigue that your son fell into. His hand killed your dog and your wife's parakeet. His hand burned down your house and stirred up the looters. He is ultimately the one who caused your wife to die of unhappiness and who made your daughter a concubine. Do you realize that your waiter Prosper was none other than Picot? And do you realize that this is the very moment he is going to fasten on you a sign that says, Number Three? With this, the madman's dagger found Lupion's heart so skillfully that the victim fell, barely uttering a feeble whimper. I wish I could say that this was the end of the story and that Picot found the peace that had eluded him so long, but as he was on his way home, he was kidnapped by someone who had been watching his actions and knew of his misdeeds and, had, and was taken deep into the crypts below Paris. When Picot realized that his kidnapper was none other than Antoine Alou, he tried to bargain for his freedom. But both men had by that time become so greedy that neither would budge. Antoine wanted Picot's treasure, but Picot was unwilling to give up a satisfactory amount, even to feed himself. One day, Antoine looked over at his former friend and noticed that he had a diabolical smile on lips that were turning blue, and realizing Picot was about to die without having given up his treasure, was overtaken by such a rage that he fell onto his prisoner, prisoner like a raging beast, strangling him, stabbing his eyes with a knife, and slicing open his chest. After that, he ran out of this subterranean cell where he left behind only a cadaver. He ran far away. He left Paris for good and settled in England. All of this was later discovered and relayed to the Parisian police when on his deathbed Antoine confessed his sins to a priest who promised he would pass along his confession. I think this story is really great, and again, if you have a young reader, it would be a great way to build their vocabulary and get them interested in some different literature. Now, a short biographical note on Jacques Pouchet. Pouchet was a prolific writer and researcher. He first became famous for his Encyclopedia of Commerce, an early work of economics that caught the attention of Benjamin Franklin, among others. He served in several different government positions both under Napoleon and under the Bourbons. His five-volume Geography of Commerce caught the attention of Napoleon, and from 1805 on, he held fairly high government positions as an archivist. 
From 1815 until he retired in 1825, he was the archivist for the Chief of Police of Paris. From this position, he compiled his memoirs cited in, in this tale. His studies on suicide in the memoirs were translated with commentary into German by Karl Marx. James Madison noted some of Pouchet's research in his writing. How many writers could claim to have influenced both the main framer of the Constitution of the United States and the author of the Communist Manifesto? The memoirs were originally published in 1838 in six volumes. The Diamond and the Vengeance is found in volume five. Some French researchers have noted that the records of the Finistrel prison and, as best can be determined, all French police records have no record of a prisoner or an arrest of anyone named Picot or Lucher in the period of 1807 to 1811. Though Pouchet's work is simply a compilation of police records, it is possible that this account may originally have been a fiction. On the other hand, the inaccuracies may have been a sign of careless editing or simply the haste of a first draft. Pouchet's memoirs were edited from a manuscript he was working on when he died. Pouchet notes that many police records from this time period had disappeared, especially those concerning notable spies. The entire Paris police archive was burned during the Paris Commune of 1871. Either of those facts may account for the lack of any extant record about Picot. Pouchet often did not record the actual names of people or dates of the crimes to keep relatives and friends from being associated with a crime. Many aristocratic Italian clerics, like the unnamed prelate from Milan, were sentenced to Finistrelle. It is also possible that the names as recorded by the French priest were inaccurate or that Alou used different names in his confession. The Count of Monte Cristo itself notes, the number of prisoners whose names are not on the register is incalculable. Whatever its veracity, this story inspired Alexandre Dumas and his collaborator Auguste Maquet to write The Count of Monte Cristo after Dumas read the account in Pouchet's book in late 1842 or early 1843. I will be covering the other inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo in a future episode, so stay tuned for that. And meanwhile, I have a outro that was made especially for this episode and actually has backing music because I'm getting better at this whole podcast thing. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy, and I will catch up with you later. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Ooh, ooh, ooh. that saying it never, oh, never grows old. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So I'll bide my time with reason and rhyme and live to tell the tale you broke my heart in pieces so sharp they tear a soul in twain 
taken your words are all in vain for revenge is a dish best served cold ooh, ooh, ooh. that saying it never oh never grows old is mine saith the Lord I'll say it too I'm coming for you ooh, ooh. revenge is a dish best served cold That saying it never, oh, never grows old. Ooh, ooh, I bided my time with reason and rhyme and lived to tell the tale. Lived to tell.